Welcome to John Wesley United Methodist Church Podcast. I'm Marty Dunbar, lead pastor here. We are continuing with a simple Christmas. We've been talking about how we could spend less, but today we're talking about how we could give more and give more strategically, but also what does it mean to give? What should relational giving require of us and cost of us? And what we're looking at is the story of Mary, who gave really all to be a servant to God to birth the Christ child. And so there's some wonderful history behind her name, wonderful history behind the circumstances of what she was dealing with at that particular time in history. And I think it's a great example of a faithful follower of Jesus. May you be blessed today and every day. So we're talking about giving more this week. Last week, we talked about spending less. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Exactly. How do we do that? How do we spend less, give more? Talked a little bit about that last week as we talked about how we should really give with leverage, right? Give with leverage. But I want us to begin to think about the art of giving. The art of giving has this foundation in relationships. You would give somebody a gift, they would return a gift to you. There was a remembering of a relationship, there was a celebrating of a covenant or relationship that was at work in one's life. Uh, relational giving altogether is, um, it's, it's not spending more money, it's just giving more out of ourselves, out of relationship. It's the greatest gift that we have ever been given is Jesus Christ, born into this world. As John 3.16 said, God gave his one and only son. And in the giving, that is a relational gift. That is a celebration of relationship, isn't it? A celebration of relationship that the gift of the Christ child is relational giving because God wanted to be in relation with each and every one of us. He wanted us to reciprocate. He wanted us to respond to the many gifts and blessings, mercy, forgiveness, grace that he offered each and every one of us individually and throughout the world. Now, one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received in my life, as I think about it from a relational standpoint and overall gift is when I was 30 years old, my mom gave me two large scrapbooks the creative memory scrapbook that she had created, two volumes, I have them, this thick each. And when I was 30, she basically had started when I was born, gone all the way up to my 30th birthday. It included seminary and, and football and college and high school. It included my wedding and included when I was born and, and all the vacations and different things and just amazing. I mean, the, the, the expanse of this gift it's one of the greatest things that I have in my life as I can look through that and enjoy and celebrate all the relationships and all the things that I've been about in my life in that 30 years. And I think of all the time and the effort that she put into that, all the love. One thing that I want to show you, a picture, and somebody, a couple of people out there are going to recognize this picture. Um, and this is a picture of a cards um, I don't know where the pines are, but Don and Susan Pine uh, love to uh, give these little uh, gifts at Christmas, especially to the pastors. And so these are beautiful 
note cards, high-end note cards we can use to write thank you notes and, and different things like that, notes of encouragement. And they always have some of Don's amazing pictures on the front. And I think about what a simple gift, right? But how much cost all the relational stuff, all the energy, all the effort that goes into that gift right there. First of all, Don has to have the expertise to take a picture like that, right? He also has to be in a location to take a picture like that. And then he has to go through and look at all the pictures that he would think be worthy to place on a card and then all the effort to make the note cards. And how beautiful of a gift is that? There's another picture I want to show you. Uh, sits in my office. It's actually, this is about this big. It's, it's not that big of a thing. And Grayson gave me this, my youngest, when he was younger. And it is a relational gift for sure because I look at that and I see all the energy that a little boy put into that piece of art. That's a picture of he and I and we have crowns on. I don't know. I don't think he, I don't know if he know he thinks I have a crown anymore, but we had crowns on back then, <clears throat> right? But all the energy that went into that to create that, it's a remembrance of the love, the relationship that we had then as well as now. And I look at it and I celebrate what we have. And as Cousin Eddie said in Christmas Vacation, right, Clark, it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? And it does. And I have little gifts like this scattered throughout my office and in my possession at home as well. But consumerism has sort of taken gift giving and sort of uh, changed it, turned it into something totally different. And we, we and many people forget where it all started in this relationship of a father that gave his one and only son for each and every one of us. Now God's answer to our needs in the world, the gift that we really needed to receive, was not more money in our bank accounts, right? It was not more stuff in our possession, not a better economy in our country or in the world. The answer was a relationship with him. The answer was that he was going to give him us himself through the birth of the Christ child, Jesus Christ, right? God gave us his presence. It's that simple. He gave us his presence. But it's also that complex because we know it cost him something, right? We know it cost him everything. And a simple Christmas, as we think about that, is grounded in giving that is relational. A giving that, that like is a part of God's plan. It's personal. It's, it's healthy. It, it's not cheap because it costs us something. It costs us a few things. Relational giving costs us two things that I just wanted to point out. The first is time and money, or time and energy, right? Not always money. But then it's, it costs, it's risky, isn't it? Relational giving is risky. I mean, if we make something for somebody, we give out of our heart, even if we buy a, a, a gift or a present that we don't for sure, you know, they're going to love, right? They're, it's risky. What if they don't like it? What if they don't understand the thing that we have created or we've worked so hard to, to make? What if, what if they don't appreciate it? What if they don't appreciate the time and the effort, again, and the cost, maybe? The gift of a Christ child long ago is God gave himself at great risk, 
because he knew that we might reject his love. He also came and preached and taught a new way of doing things. And he knew that people wouldn't like it. They might reject it all together. They might not appreciate what he was saying. The time and the effort and the cost, they might just ignore him altogether, which we find ourselves in a world that ignores everything that God does day in and day out all the time. But a true gift is not about the giver. It's also about the receiver and how you receive things in the spirit of humility because they've been given in the spirit of humility and love and grace. And that's part of our Christmas story. So the Christmas story has a lot of characters, right? And we have pointed out Mary a couple of uh, weeks ago. I want to revisit her, okay? I want to go back to this, this figure, this Mother Mary, right, that, that birthed Jesus, that was willing to be a servant of God in the midst of this. This is a woman who used her, um, her opportunity to be a part of something and gave us a gift, right? And it cost her something in spite of the cost. And it's a story about giving more so that we could all experience the love of God. Now, her story has some rich details behind it. And so what I want to do today is just give you a little context behind um, where the angel had shown up. And when he says certain things, it gives this message of God to Mary, what she was dealing with, how she would have taken it, and what she was ultimately giving up by saying, I am your servant, Lord. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, if you have your scriptures, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 is what we're going to be highlighting today and looking at. I want to start in verse 26. The Apostle Luke says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. So the angel, we've heard this before, whether we've grown up in church or not, but we've heard greetings, favor, uh, you know, is with you, favored woman, and and, and God is present with you, okay? And so think about that. God is present. God is a part of your life. God is, what, in relationship with you. And so that's what's been promised here by the angel. The Lord is with you. God is present with you. He's not far off. He is here with you now, Mary. He's going to walk with you. He's going to be able to lead you. He's going to strengthen you. That's that's what we believe as Christians, that our God is not far off. He is here. He is present. And then Luke goes on and says, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. But don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Again, Don't fear, you found favor. God is giving you a beautiful gift. I can't wait for you to experience it. You'll love it. So let's put some context around this. When you were uh, born in the ancient world, uh, around the Mediterranean area, like Jesus was, and you were a significant leader or you are a ruler, or a king, or you are a conqueror, or a liberator, whatever it was, 
your birth story always had special circumstances. There were, there were always going to be a birth story that had some unusual circumstances, special circumstances that was in your story so that when somebody said, okay, who is that? And you would say, well, let me tell you about how they were born. Okay. And it usually gave us a glimpse. The story gave a, a glimpse to people about the nature of the person or the kingdom in which they were going to lead. Well, Julius Caesar, about 50 years before Jesus, had a strange birth story, special circumstances around his birth story that the many of the public knew, that supposedly he was the ancestor of the goddess Venus, okay? And so you can see throughout history these little um, spatterings of these stories around Jesus' time as well. Well, let me show you a map of uh, Palestine. Really, kind of this is the the world that we would know, the biblical world that we would know around Jesus' time. This is a little box right there, rectangle of red that sort of tells us where Jesus sort of lived and did ministry and died and, and all that. Well, here's some important dates around this area and the promised land. 722 BC, the Syrians came in and dominated, conquered it, and set up their empire. In 597 BC, the Babylonians did the same. 538 BC, the Persians took over from the Babylonians. In 332 BC, the Greeks came in and tried to establish their, um, their way of life, right? And took over. In 63 BC, the Romans came in. So the nation of Israel, the promised land, was an oppressed land. Every single superpower during this time had passed through this portion and this piece of property, most likely, to conquer the known world. And they would leave total destruction. And they would rule uh, with an iron fist most of the time, right? And so you have a strategic place in the world right there on the map because you, you can see that Africa is to the south and then you have Asia to the east and you have Europe to the west or northwest. And, and so you have every single superpower would come through here or land here trying to go and conquer the known world. And so it just wreaked havoc with the promised land. So when Luke tells a story about a teenage girl named Mary who lived in this land, the Galilee, it was a land that was oppressed. It was a people that was, were marginalized, okay? And they had been conquered by every superpower for generations and generations, one after the other. Josephus, you might have heard his name. He's a Jewish historian, he speaks about when the Romans come in, right before Jesus' birth, when the Romans came in and entered the promised land, listen to what he says. Vespasian had fortified all the places round about Jerusalem and erected citadels at Jericho and Adada and placed garrisons in them both. He also sent Lucius Aeneas to Gerasa and delivered to him a body of horsemen and a considerable number of footmen. So when he had taken the city, which he did at the first onset, he slew a thousand of those young men who had not prevented him by fleeing or flying away. But he took 
their families captive and permitted his soldiers to plunder them of their effects, after which he set fire to their houses and went away to the adjoining villages, while the men of power fled away and the weaker part were destroyed. And what was remaining was all burnt down, and now the war Having gone through all the mountainous country and all the plain country, also those that were in Jerusalem were deprived of the liberty of going out of the city. The Romans, like many others, though, but the Romans were brutal. They would come in and try to kill everyone that would rebel against them, right? So here's Mary in Nazareth in the Galilee, And her people have been oppressed and victimized. Here's Mary, a 13 to 15 year old girl with childbearing years who hears from an angel of the Lord, right? And we we think, gosh, isn't Mary young? But again, life expectancy around this time was 35 to 40. Jesus probably was an older man in his society, speaking wisdom into people's lives. And so here's the context. Again, the angel appears and says, hey, greetings, Mary. You have found favor with the Lord, right? And favor back then meant that you were probably going to lead some people into battle and you might die doing so. And if you're going to step out and you had favor and you're going to lead a new kingdom, right? Or you were going to birth somebody who was going to lead a new kingdom. You were also going to be going up against the Roman rulers, the Roman Empire. So what did this mean for you? You wouldn't think much favor. You would actually think, ha, that's scary, right? Death. So there's a lot of weighing on the response that Mary has in giving of herself to what God was trying to do. So it said, Luke goes on in verse 31, you will receive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So there's some highlighted things in there. Yes, you, Mary, are going to give birth to a son with God's help. You will name him Jesus, and then he's going to be called the son of the most high, and he's going to have his own kingdom. That's cool. It sounds like a blast, right? Son of the most high. I mean, that's, that's an honoring terminology, right? A name. But the, the key here is, if you understand that the son of the most high was actually reserved for Caesars. The Caesars of the Roman Empire would be addressed like that. Here's Mary hearing and oppressed people, marginalized people, up against the superpower Rome, and all of a sudden she is going to be given this gift, a birth a son, Jesus, a son of the most high. Actually, you're going to birth a Caesar. <laughs> He's going to reestablish a whole nother kingdom. He's going to reign over Israel, and his kingdom will never end. And here's a 13 to 15-year-old teenager going to have a baby and thinking to herself, What does this mean to Mary, right? To her in this world and at this time. It doesn't always mean favor. It means death. It means sacrifice. It means a great cause to her life. And she's going to give more of herself, isn't she? Now, 
The name Mary actually has a history to it as well. There's great history behind this. Her parents would have known the name Mary had a history. It's a Greek translation, Mary is, from a Hebrew name, Miriam. And you can spell Miriam two different ways, okay? There's two famous Marys or Miriams that Mary and her parents would have known of. The first is the sister of Moses. You can look at the Exodus, uh, chapters in Exodus, and you can meet the sister of Moses, Miriam, and she was basically a worship leader in that time because we see her in the scripture as the children of Israel come out of the Red Sea as they're fleeing away from the Egyptian troops, and then the Red Sea that had parted and they're on dry ground comes back and just pulverizes the Egyptian troops and the Israelites are safe on the other side and they're free and she sings what is called the song of the sea. She celebrates God's faithfulness in her song. She's the spokesperson of liberation. She's this worship leader of the revolution that God is doing through his people. So then there's Mary, mother of Jesus, of course. She, she would have heard this story. She would have known about this story. She would have learned about this in her family, in her synagogues, right? That this person was a, had a place of, played a significant role in her people's history and was a great person who helped liberate God's people. Now there's this other kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom, and they were the Greeks, Okay. They actually conquered the promised land, and Antiochus, you might have heard of him, he uh, was trying to get all the Jews to become Greeks, and they resisted him, and they didn't want to become Greeks, and so what he did is he said, it's a law to be a Jew. It's against the law to be a Jew. And so he formulated this law and said, it's illegal to be a Jew, and you can't be a Jew. Well, in 167 AD, Antiochus destroys the Jewish temple. And you've heard this story before probably as well. He basically does something what's called the abomination of desolation. And so he does all these horrible things within the temple, basically desecrates the temple. And the Maccabeans, you've heard of the Maccabean revolution, rises up and as they rebel against him, they also take control of the temple back and they begin to clean the temple and they don't have enough oil to keep all the lamps burning, but the oil lasts an extraordinary amount of time, extra, right? And that's where the Jewish people get the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, right? So we've heard of that as well. So the Hasmoneans are a family that come out of this revolution. They're a Jewish family who rule uh, the Promised Land from 140 to 116 BC, okay? An independent Israel, legendary family, again, out of this revolution, and, and, and they basically um, rule independently until the Romans get involved again. The Romans come in, they won't need a puppet king. And so what they do is they get a guy named Herod, and you know him as Herod the Great. History knows him as Herod the Great. And so this is a brutal man. And he thinks to himself, how can I get the Hasmoneans on my side? How can I make peace with the local people, right? And in this promised land that I'm going to rule. And so he takes the daughter of the king of the Hasmoneans, and her name is Mary. Her name is Miriam. And so this is just 30 years before Jesus. 
And so this famous Mary or Miriam is described as a beautiful princess from a legendary family that brought liberation and freedom to their people who are in desperate need of it. All this stuff is wrapped up in the name of Mary. Think about that. Herod the Great, uh, we've heard of him before uh, being brutal, and he was. Uh, he actually drowns Mary's brother in their pool, okay? He actually kills um, two of their sons. He actually kills Mary's uncle. Then rumor has it that Mary wants to poison Herod, and that gets back to Herod. Um, false news, basically, but she's tried, and she's convicted and executed in 29 B.C., about 30 years before Jesus or so. And so her name, Mary, this, this name, Mary, mother of Jesus, is, has all this history. And it's a name of liberation. It's a name of freedom. But it's also a name of sorrow. It's a name of burden. You actually can translate um, the meaning uh, is love and beloved, but it's also bitter and sea of sorrows, but also rebellious. All those things are wrapped up in this name. And so the story of Mary being greeted by this angel and hearing and commissioning of what's about to occur in her life, have no fear, just relax. God is about to do something amazing, right? And you're going to be the mother of a ruler. She's probably scared to death, right? Because that doesn't mean simple for her. It means complex for sure. What will this gift, she's probably thinking to herself, what would this gift require of me? It sounds like a whole lot. And so that's maybe the question that arises to us as we try to give more. What does this gift require of me? Or does it require nothing of me, right? What will love require of me as I give this gift? To give this gift, does it, does it cost you something? Is it risky? Is it uncertain? I mean, here's Mary, the mother of a revolution, the mother of um, an amazing gift that's going to be given to all the world, the son of the most high God, right? A kingdom that will never end. And, and the teenager answers in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. What a beautiful testimony and witness to faithfulness, to what God wants to do. And she is a part of, again, the greatest gift that is ever offered to the world, but it costs her something, right? When we give more through relational giving, I mean, there's a whole new meaning when we look at the story of Mary, right? And the history behind that name, because she was a part of birthing something new and beautiful, and if you want to be a part of birthing something, maybe new or giving something that is so beautiful, it requires much of us, time and effort and relationship, and it's risky at times, right? So a simple Christmas has a value of giving more, to give more, and it requires something of us. It's just not simple. And I mean, it costs a lot. It can be risky, Right? I remind you, a simple Christmas definition is helps us pursue what really matters because that's what we want to figure out, what really matters during this season so we can live at the highest level of satisfaction in God. And I think that's what Mary did. We know the rest of the story, 
right? We know Jesus was crucified. He was killed. He was executed as enemy of the state number one, right? Think about Mary, bitter, a sea of sorrows, right? The disciples are all gone. They've sort of fled. Maybe John's still around and that's it. But who else is there at the feet of Jesus on the cross? Mary, because she signed up long ago and she said, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the Lord's servant. That's a story, right? That's a new way of living. That's a new way of giving, right? And I think Mary did that. She gave the highest level of satisfaction in God. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, you challenge us with the faithfulness of Mary. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to give gifts during the Christmas time in honor of what you gave to us. And so as we figure out exactly what we want to give. I pray that in our giving, it might cost us something. Yes, maybe it's going to cost us money, wages, but will it cost us time and some effort as we seek to be relational in our giving? So challenge our hearts, Lord, and free us to live as you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I hope you enjoyed this message. And if you did, I invite you to support our ministry by giving online at jwumc.org give. Also would invite you to find a church to attend on a regular basis or join us at John Wesley on Sunday mornings at 815, 9 o'clock and 1115. God bless and have a great week.